say, right now I'm in the chaotic period of trying to finish up my oral board case lists and I'm trying to like frantically remember what in the heck I was doing way back when I was a chief resident. And thank God there is the OBG project to help remind me of some of these things. Yeah, the OBG project has been great for studying for oral boards because I'm in the exact same place as you are. What's even better is that I have their subscription service, OBG First, which allows me to create my own bookshelf so that I can go back to all the articles that I've been reading about GYN that I've forgotten. If you're a chief resident, you can get that OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, creagsrivertocoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and you can sign up. And if you're a resident, you actually can get access to the core, which is a resident curriculum. I actually have a new feature on here called the Resident Core Life Hacks Library, which I'm going to have to go check out. You can also check out the sidebar on our website to get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creogs over, over coffee. coffee. So today we're going to be talking about anemia in pregnancy because of that new practice bulletin that just came out, number 233. Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? We'll start off reviewing physiologic reasons for decreased hemoglobin values in pregnancy. Then we'll talk about the most common causes of anemia in pregnancy. We'll go through a workup for anemia in pregnancy, and then finally we'll talk about the treatment of anemia in pregnancy. Faye, I think this is another example of us jumping the gun a bit because we talked about sickle cell roughly a month ago and got into sickle cell, but we never actually talked about anemia by itself. This is what happens when you go into MFM. You only think about the pathology. (laughs) I guess let's bring it back then and start off with just some definitions and some physiologic changes. Yeah, sure. So remember, there's a little bit of a difference when we're talking about anemia in pregnancy. So anemia in pregnancy is defined when the hemoglobin is less than 11 grams per deciliter in the first and the third trimester, and when it's less than 10.5 grams per deciliter in the second trimester. This is a big difference from the previous practice bulletin that ACOG had. So previously, there had been a lower threshold for certain people based on race, but one very important study that just came out recently found that this lower threshold actually contributed to the perpetuation of racial disparities in medicine without really a scientific reason for that lower hemoglobin and actually led to increased risk of needing transfusion at the time of delivery. In terms of why this hemoglobin definitions are there for pregnancy, think back all the way to our first couple of episodes when we talked about the physiologic changes of pregnancy, right? So remember in pregnancy, we know that plasma volume expands by about 40 to 50%. So even though the red blood cell mass does expand as well, it expands less. So it only expands by 15 to 25%. So it does seem overall that the hematocrit or the hemoglobin will go down. There's also an increased iron requirement during pregnancy, so it is more likely for people to become iron deficient because of this increased need. So Nick, let's very quickly talk about some of the causes of anemia in pregnancy before we start talking about workup. So what are some things that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, so let's break this into acquired anemias and inherited anemias, and I think that's a really easy way to sort of split up your differential to start. 
So for acquired anemias, there are a couple of group causes. The first and probably the most frequently thought of in pregnancy are deficiency-based anemia, so things that are nutritional deficiencies. Iron deficiency is probably what you're thinking of already, and that's definitely by far the most common nutritional deficiency in pregnancy. Don't forget, though, that B12 deficiency and folic acid deficiency also can lead to anemias. Next up is hemorrhagic anemia. That's also one that's very common in pregnancy, but more postpartum um, after delivery postpartum hemorrhage. Final acquired anemias that we could consider are things like anemia of chronic disease and acquired hemolytic anemia or aplastic anemias. On the inherited anemia side, we've talked about some of these on the podcast previously. As we mentioned earlier, we had an episode on sickle cell, but kind of in that same vein, there are also inherited anemias like thalassemias, other hemoglobinopathies, and then there are also actually inherited hemolytic anemias. Um, So keep a broad differential open, but kind of moving from here, Faye, I think we should start to talk about exactly working this up and starting to narrow down our categories. Before we can even work somebody up for anemia, we got to figure out whether or not they have anemia, right? As Most of you probably know, if you take care of pregnant people, they should be screened for anemia with a complete blood count in the first trimester, and then again, right before that third trimester, towards the end of the second trimester, between 24 to 28 weeks. We always get that CBC. Also, I think previously we talked about this as well, we should have discussions with everybody about screening for hemoglobinopathies if they have not been screened before. Doesn't matter race or ethnicity, we really should have that discussion with everyone talking about a workup, the first thing that I kind of want to talk about is to look at the type of anemia in someone who is asymptomatic with mild to moderate anemia. And so that's looking kind of at your red cell index. So are the cells microcytic, normocytic, or macrocytic? So by microcytic, we mean an NCV of less than 80. And most commonly, you're going to see this to be caused by iron deficiency. And most of the time, people who see someone who has a microcytic anemia in that late second trimester to early third trimester, most people will just start those people on iron supplementation because of how common that is. Other things to be considerate of are things like thalassemias, anemia of chronic disease, sideroblastic anemia. And so certainly these are things that you want to keep in the back of your mind if you're giving someone iron treatment and their hemoglobin is not getting better. The next is to look at normocytic anemia. And so that's when your MCV is between 80 to 100. And early iron deficiency is actually still the most common type of anemia. Other things to think about would be like a hemorrhagic cause. So if someone is, you know, chronically abrupting or they're having bleeding and that's why they're anemic, it certainly can be normocytic. Again, other things to think about would be things like anemia of chronic disease, bone marrow suppression, chronic renal insufficiency, or hemolytic anemia. And then last but not least, we have macrocytic anemia, and that's when the MCV is greater than 100. Again, we kind of think of folic acid or B12 deficiency as kind of our most common causes of these things. And usually an MCV that is greater than 115 is almost exclusively a B12 deficiency. Other things to think about would be like reticulocytosis, liver disease, alcohol abuse, drug-induced hemolytic anemias. So, I mean, we've talked about now the microcytic, normocytic versus macrocytic anemia. What else should we be ordering if we find that someone is anemic or we're treating them for iron deficiency and, for example, they're not getting better? Yeah, so think 
first alongside those microcytic anemias about getting iron studies. You'll measure red blood cell indices, as Faye mentioned before, that mean corpuscular volume, or MCV. Also look at serum iron levels, ferritin levels, and in some places they'll also include a total iron binding capacity. In someone who has true iron deficiency anemia, the serum iron and the ferritin is going to be low, while the total iron binding capacity, or the ability of your body to bind and grab onto iron, is going to be high. If you don't see that, then you should think about other causes of microcytic anemia. A peripheral blood smear can also sometimes be helpful. I'm not going to look at a peripheral blood smear under a microscope, but again, if you start to see things like there are spherocytes present or you have different kinds of morphologies of red blood cells, that may point you in a different direction. Vitamin B12 and folate levels can also be helpful, particularly if your anemia is trending towards macrocytosis rather than microcytosis. Other workup that can be considered includes referral to hematology. Again, if they're not responding to treatment with supplementation of some sort, then you may need to call on some colleagues to help you with the workup. Um, think about, too, is there a reason for malabsorption potentially? Like, does your patient have a history of gastric bypass, and so they're just not getting any of the iron or B12 or anything despite supplementation? And then finally, I think in pregnancy, too, one thing that can't be overlooked is, is there a reason for blood loss that's ongoing? Do you suspect abruption? Is someone using a blood thinner like Lovenox or something like that that you then are thinking, oh, is there somewhere that they're spilling blood? Another uncommon reason in pregnancy, but one that's common outside of pregnancy you'd think about might be GI hemorrhage. Do you need to do like a hemocult um, or get an EGD to take a look at ulcers or something like that? So all things that can work on your sort of anemia workup and figure out where the blood is getting lost. All right, so that's a pretty good summary of workup, Faye. I think, though, let's get to the meat of all of this. Um, huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, how punny am I? Um, and talk about the treatment of anemia. Sure. So I think what you're trying to get at, Nick, is iron deficiency and like eating more red meat. <laughs> I always talk about the Texas diet with this. I can't help myself. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, with iron deficiency, obviously we want to start off with oral iron unless there is some reason for malabsorption. If you're thinking like, you know, your patient has short gut syndrome, has Crohn's or something like that, and they're not going to absorb that oral iron, we can always start with some oral iron and see if that's all they need. The usual requirements during pregnancy is about 27 milligrams daily, which most of the time we don't always get in the Western diet. I, I, I will defer to you in terms of the Texas diet if they do get enough, <laughs> but most people living in the United States probably get around 15 milligrams of elemental iron per day. So it's just kind of under what they actually need every day. And so they can very quickly become iron depleted. Most oral forms of iron, you know, will exceed that 27 milligrams daily during pregnancy. I think the most common form that I've seen has like 65. Um, so most oral forms, if you take it once a day, should be enough. However, some people may not be able to tolerate oral iron. I, I have a lot of patients that tell me, hey, when I take my oral iron, you know, there's all these requirements. You have to take it like with little orange juice on an empty stomach. It makes people nauseous. It makes them constipated. Or again, if you have that patient that has some form of malabsorption, then we do need to consider IV iron. And this can come in the form of iron dextran, ferric gluconate, or iron sucrose. And it really just depends on what you have at your institution to kind of look up the protocols and the dosing for whichever iron infusion that you guys have. Okay, so that's iron deficiency. What about like folate or B12? 
So an MCV over 115 is almost exclusively seen in folks with a folate or B12 deficiency. So if you're seeing an MCV that high, think give folate or B12. Folic acid in pregnancy, again, the minimum requirement is 400 micrograms a day unless they need to be on a higher dose for other reasons. Um, commonly, those would be a history of a neural tube defect in a prior pregnancy or a patient who's on anti-epileptic medication, particularly medications that interfere with that folate pathway. B12 deficiency is admittedly less common, and it's usually only seen in folks who have a history of some sort of gastric resection or who have Crohn's disease. Um, supplementation with B12 can be given intramuscularly on a monthly basis, 1,000 micrograms per injection. Finally, just briefly, again, to talk about other causes, and as a reminder one more time, depending on the cause, you should look to your other colleagues from other specialties for weird stuff that can cause anemia. Um, your friendly neighborhood MFM is a great person to chat with, or your friendly neighborhood hematologist is another person to chat with. Faye, I think as a sort of a last mention on this note, we've talked about IV iron, but sometimes when the hemoglobin gets really, really low, we wonder whether blood transfusion is appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are studies that have shown that a hemoglobin of less than six has been associated with abnormal fetal oxygenation. And so usually, you know, we'll recommend transfusion if a hemoglobin is less than seven or even if it's more than seven, but the patient is symptomatic. However, you can always consider a higher threshold if there are other comorbidities. And so the main one that I'm thinking about is sickle cell, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. if a patient goes below a certain threshold of hemoglobin, that's when they start to be at higher risk for sickling and sickling crises and pain crises. Um, and so you can certainly think about transfusing those patients with like a goal of hemoglobin greater than eight, for example, if that's what they need so that they're not getting sick and coming into the hospital. All right, Nick, I know that this was like a pretty brief overview of a lot of stuff, but I think, you know, we've tried to summarize a little bit of what's in the practice bulletin and kind of what we're using every single day. So let's go ahead and summarize. We started off with just a refresher on some physiologic changes. Remember that anemia in pregnancy is defined as a hemoglobin of less than 11 grams per deciliter in the first and third trimester, and less than 10.5 grams per deciliter in the second trimester. Previously, there was a lower threshold recommended by ACOG for folks based on their racial identity, but an important study recently found this lower threshold contributed to the perpetuation of racial disparities in medicine without any scientific basis. So again, hemoglobin less than 11 in the first and third, hemoglobin less than 10.5 in the second trimester. Remember the reason that this happens is due to the physiologic changes in pregnancy where there's a greater increase in plasma volume compared to erythrocyte mass. There's also an increase in iron requirement, so it's more likely for people to become iron deficient in pregnancy. You can define anemia on the basis of two really broad categories of acquired and inherited anemias. Remember that iron deficiency anemia is by far the most common acquired deficiency. Inherited anemias include things like thalassemias, sickle cell, hemoglobinopathy. In terms of working people up for anemia, every patient should be screened for anemia with the CBC at the first trimester as well as in the late second trimester. We should also discuss with every patient regarding screening for hemoglobinopathies. Finally, looking at a patient who has asymptomatic with mild to moderate anemia, we should look at their red cell indices and look to see if the anemia is microcytic, normocytic, or macrocytic. From there, you can also include things like iron studies, a peripheral blood smear, vitamin B12 and folate levels if 
particularly if the patient has macrocytosis, and then call your friendly neighborhood MFM or hematologist if you feel like you're not getting anywhere with a workup, particularly because you could be missing something like a malabsorptive syndrome like gastric bypass or Crohn's um, or ongoing GI blood loss. In terms of treatment for anemia in pregnancy after you've identified it, you can certainly treat where you need to. So if someone has iron deficiency, you should definitely give them oral iron unless there's some form of malabsorption or if they're not able to tolerate the oral iron. The usual requirements is about 27 milligrams daily during pregnancy, and most oral forms of iron will greatly exceed this at about 65 milligrams. And so certainly you can start with once a day iron or once every other day iron. Folator B12 deficiency, again, is exclusively associated really with an MCV greater than 115. Folic acid in pregnancy recommendation is 400 micrograms per day unless there are other indications for an folate level increased over that, a history of a child with a neural tube defect or someone who's on anti-epileptics. B12 deficiency is usually seen in folks with gastric resections or Crohn's disease, and that's an intramuscular injection monthly of 1,000 micrograms per injection. In terms of other causes, again, remember to go ahead and talk to your other colleagues to discuss workup and treatment. And finally, a word on transfusion. We know that with a hemoglobin of less than six, this has been associated with abnormal fetal oxygenation. And so certainly the usual recommendation is to transfuse if the hemoglobin is less than seven or if the patient is asymptomatic or if they have a comorbidity that requires them to have a higher hemoglobin. All right. I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go onto your favorite podcatcher like iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee, or if you love the show and want to support us, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. We have show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creagsovercoffee.com. If you have a question for us or a correction to this or any of our previous episodes or just want to send us some love, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.